Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A brand new budget and spending review logo, a selection of well-lit photos of the Chancellor sporting a pair of £95 sliders, lining up a pre-budget Twix bar, and an onslaught of press releases and announcement, nothing so subtle as the traditional leaks. Then on Wednesday, Rishi Sunak finally took to his feet to set out his budget and multi-year spending review, and we're going to take a look at his plans. Boris Johnson was on the front bench and the Prime Minister was wearing a mask. Keir Starmer wasn't there. Real bad luck, although the kind that can make or break political careers, but he'd caught COVID. Are we coming out of the pandemic or edging back to some tighter restrictions? We'll look at Plan B and whether it might be deployed. And then we're going to head virtually to Glasgow with COP26 getting underway this weekend. It's a huge moment in the world's effort to tackle climate change. What will make it a success for the planet and for the UK? What would make it a failure? All that to come. I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Mo Hussein, who's worked as an advisor to Amber Rudd when she was Home Secretary and Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. He was also Chief Press Officer in Number 10 and now works for communications agency PLMR. Hi, Mo. How are things? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Also with me today throughout is IFG researcher Rosa Hodgkin. Hi, Rosa. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Okay, let's start with our first topic, the budget. Big day in Parliament. Rishi Sunak spoke for over an hour, sustained only by a glass of Sprite. And he set out what he called an economy fit for a new age of optimism. And he certainly did splash the cash in doing so, ripping up the austerity economics of former Chancellor George Osborne. Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, was watching closely and she joins us now for this segment. Hi, Gemma. Hello. What's your take? I think my overall take on it was that the rhetoric of the budget speech didn't really match up to the substance of the policies and the forecasts that were presented on Wednesday. The Chancellor, as you just said, talked about strong economic growth, a new age of optimism, help for working families and his desire for low taxes. But the reality of the budget was that the economy is set to rebound from COVID. But after that, it's on course to return to previously expected pretty sluggish growth rates. Wages are expected barely to keep pace with inflation for the next few years. And apart from the reduction in the universal credit taper and the previously trailed increase in the national living wage, there wasn't much help for families, unless you count the reduction in some of the alcohol duties. And rather than delivering on the low taxes that Rishi Sunak said he wants, actually, so far in his time as Chancellor, he's increased taxes substantially. And this week, when he was handed a windfall by the Office of Budget Responsibility in terms of the fiscal forecasts, he actually chose to spend half of that and to bank the rest. How quickly do you think he made those revisions? The forecast from the OBR, as you said, much better than it seemed in the spring, and he had a lot more spending power than he'd expected. We and others were all predicting that there would be some kind of windfall for the Chancellor in this budget. The size of it was bigger uh, than I think anyone I saw speculating about before. So, Yes, I mean, it does seem likely that he may have been quite quickly taking on board the implications of a much bigger windfall than he'd really been expecting and figure out what to do with that. So he's made a point point of saying that every single department is going to get an increase above inflation in its spending powers, uh, something something that we didn't expect, and and that repairs some of the gaps in in prisons and courts and um, even local government. Did it feel like a reversal of George Osborne? 
there were definitely some ways in which it, it was quite a, a sort of reversal or an, an opposite of George Osborne. I mean, I think the point of consistency was that Rishi Sunak set out a fisc- set of fiscal rules that were very much the ones that um, Osborne had previously been adhering to. So aiming to ensure that tax revenues cover day-to-day spending, um, allowing you to borrow for investment, but being on, a, on course to have debt falling. But within those constraints, um, Sunak's behaviour has been almost a sort of polar opposite of what we had under George Osborne. When George Osborne was handed bad fiscal news, uh, he focused on cutting spending and keeping tax rises down. When he got better news, he tended to use that to cut taxes. So far with Sunak, what we've seen is when he's got bad news, he's raised taxes. And when he's had better news this time, he's used that to raise spending and actually including reversing some of the quite specific spending cuts that Osborne had made. Um, The ones that sort of stood out for me were the reduction in the uh, universal credit taper was actually reversing a policy that Osborne had put in place. Um, The extra uh, increase in spending for schools was taking schools per pupil spending back to where it was in 2010. Those two, as you said, were, were really um, very pointed digs at, at Osborne. The, the reversing of the universal credit taper was quite explicitly taking out a, an amount that George Osborne had put on. Mo, I'm really interested in your take on this. Gemma's outlined, as she says, the way he, he's both raised taxes and raised spending. And I wondered whether you felt that this was still a recognisably conservative budget. Uh, It's very different to conservative budgets we've seen certainly over the last 10 years. And I think this speaks to the tension that now exists within the party that has this much broader voter base where you have new MPs and new voters uh, who want more investment and want more spending in their areas. And indeed, that's what has been promised. And then you also have the more traditional perhaps smaller state, lower tax conservatives who uh, think the government has gone too far uh, and maybe behave in a certain way because of the pandemic. And that's understandable, but now needs to go back to fiscal responsibility. However, what we saw yesterday was a continuation of a more interventionist and activist government, which I think will politically be problematic going forward, because uh, I think there will be people who uh, want to go back to more traditional forms of conservatism where, and the Chancellor touched on this at the end of his speech, where he spoke about the state can't get involved in everything, not everything can be resolved by spending taxpayers' money. Just because we behave in a certain way in response to the pandemic, that doesn't mean that that is now the default position going forward. And I do think there is going to be a, a bit of nervousness uh, on the back benches amongst some parts of the party on that in terms of where is the Conservative Party going? There was a lot of, we are wearing Labour's clothes, which was quite telling. And in some ways, yes, because uh, I think number 10 have worked out, you know, the Prime Minister, uh, I understand, has banned the word austerity. Number 10 have worked out that spending and investment is incredibly popular among the public. And if you want to win the seats you won in 2019 again, you do have to spend money. You do have to come good on your promises. But... uh, if you are then going to absorb uh, Labour's clothes and wear them, what are the dividing lines going forward? What are the things that go back to Conservative voters, make you Conservative and make them want to vote for you? And I think that will be a bit of a challenge going forward. 
I mean, you put it very well, because at the moment it's a problem for Labour not being able to dif- differentiate itself as well as it might like, but that could turn out to be a problem for Conservatives. Gemma, you'd mentioned in what you said, there's a point, a few points of danger. At the moment, Sunak has raised some taxes. He got through that one awful lot of spending. People are uh, cautiously pleased about that. But you mentioned the rising cost of living and indeed through that, the risk of, of inflation and higher interest rates. What could that do to what Sunak is promising? I think the danger there really is that in this speech and in quite a lot of the government rhetoric, there's been a sort of promise of improving living standards, particularly for those people who feel like they haven't seen that in the recent past. But the reality is that actually the economic forecasts beyond the sort of COVID bounce back still look quite weak um, with rising prices and wages low, it actually means a lot of middle-income households over the next year or so, once you take together the impact of rising prices and the tax increases that are coming next April, will find that their disposable income in real terms is actually lower than it was before. And whether that just creates a political problem for the government that actually they've, they won't have anything that they can say to people, actually, this is, this is why life is now feeling better for you. Rosa, we're going to come on to net zero in more detail in a moment, but this was a speech very light on net zero, wasn't it? You didn't really have very much reference to it at all. Yeah, it was really noticeable how little net zero was mentioned, particularly given that it's a budget coming so soon before COP26. The Chancellor did reiterate some of the spending that had been announced in the various net zero strategies last week, but he didn't add anything to that. And there was no clear direction on tax and net zero. So the OBR estimated that some of the tax changes might reduce emissions, but others like the fuel duty freeze would increase them. And Mo, why do you think this was? I mean, it seems a political easy goal to do something about net zero right ahead of the net zero summit. Uh, it does on the face of it. But I think this again goes back to the different priorities within government, the net zero uh, agenda, sustainability agenda and COP, I think, is much more something the Prime Minister is focused on and involved in. And the Chancellor uh, is thinking along the lines of, as as expected, how are we going to pay for this? Where does this money come from? And the Treasury document last week didn't really have any answers to that, but just posed more questions around it. So I think this was probably deliberate on his part there. This is not something the Chancellor necessarily wants to be overly associated with I think COP was mentioned once in his entire speech um, and the announcements around air passenger duty uh, coming so uh, soon ahead of COP I think will raise questions as well around the message that the UK is giving out to the uh, international community who will be with us in a week's time. And Gemma, on international reputation, was there much sign of a Brexit dividend or Brexit cost? I mean, there was some specific references in the speech to the sort of Brexit dividends that were possible, particularly around the reforms to alcohol duties, whether or not that's a tax policy. I mean, there were some constraints on alcohol duties whilst we were a member of the EU, but some of the perversities of the system could have been um, dealt with earlier. But uh, if it takes, uh, if you want to harness that argument, then I'm all in favour of doing what's necessary to reform and improve the tax system. But looking kind of further into the detail of the OBR forecasts in particular, there wasn't much sign of a a Brexit dividend there for the economy more generally. Um, The OBR highlighted, for example, that trade with the EU is still 
well down um, and sort of reinforcing their previous um, expectation that overall Brexit is likely to have a negative impact on the UK economy. And, and actually, that sort of negative impact, we've been focusing very much on what's the pandemic done to the economy in the long term. But really, that impact of, of Brexit on the UK's economic prospects is still bigger than anything the pandemic now seems to have done. We're coming on to the pandemic in just a, a second. Mo, last word on this. How did you think Rachel Reeves did? I think she did quite well, actually, for somebody who, uh, from what we understand, didn't have much notice that she would have to respond in that way. Uh, as, a, as a performance, I thought it was uh, quite effective, uh, though perhaps some of the charges against the government were predictable. But it, again, points back to the wider problem that Labour have, because where do they now go? A lot of these things uh, they probably ordinarily wouldn't oppose, they would support. The government has gone further than Labour in some of these things as well. So it's much more of an existential point for them in terms of what do they do next and where do they go? Okay, well, we're going to have to wrap up the budget there. We've got another special budget podcast. And Gemma, you've got to go back to crunching those numbers and indeed preparing for that podcast. So thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Brahman. Okay, on to the pandemic. As I promised, now Sunak pitched this as an economic vision for the post-pandemic age, but that ignores the slightly awkward fact that COVID hasn't gone away just yet. Just ask Keir Starmer, who was absent from the Commons after testing positive, and case numbers are remaining high, death rate is climbing, the pressure is on the government to say whether or not it's going to pivot to its plan B. So Rosa, tell us what plan B actually is. Yeah, so plan B has three main elements and then kind of an optional extra. So it's communicating clearly to the public that the level of risk has increased and they need to behave more cautiously. Mandatory vaccine only COVID passports in nightclubs and large venues and events and legally mandating face coverings in some settings with then the option of potentially reintroducing work from home guidance. But the autumn winter plan emphasises the potential economic costs of that and says that that decision would be made at the time. And you'd have all kinds of industries like the the, the, the theatre and entertainment and hospitality industry saying, look, we only just got back. This is really going to cripple us. Yeah, definitely. So the government says that around 200 uh, venues are already using the kind of optional COVID certification at the moment. But obviously, that's not that many venues. That suggests that not that many have taken it up as an optional. And how is the government going to decide whether or not we need to go to Plan B? So the autumn winter plan says that Plan B would be introduced if the data suggested the NHS was likely to come under unsustainable pressure. But it doesn't specify what unsustainable pressure means or which data it would be looking at to decide whether it was under that pressure. But the focus on the NHS suggests that potentially they might be looking at hospitalisation rates more than maybe case rates or death rates. Well, thank you for that. Earlier this week at an IFG event, I was talking to David Nabarro, who's the WHO's, the World Health Organization's special envoy on coronavirus. And I asked him about politicians wearing or not wearing masks. Here's what he said. People pay a huge amount of attention to those who are in leadership positions, whether they are in the, in the pulpit, in the church, or uh, the manager of a football club, or the school teacher, or indeed the local politicians, the mayors, and the politicians in parliament, because they can, they, they're talked and they're picked up and they're on Twitter and so on. 
have the so health secretary. I'm very keen that there happen. is role yeah. modelling wherever yeah. possible. I think we have the health secretary, Sajid Javid, now saying he's going to wear a mask. And this is a week when there's a lot of attention on Westminster because of the budget and spending review. So we'll have a close look at that. Mo, the government front bench, Jacob Rees-Mogg aside, was back in masks yesterday, more or less, for most of it. What changed? It was quite a sight, wasn't it, um, to see that. Um, I think uh, the health secretary saying what he did in terms of MPs leading by example had a big impact on that. uh, And the government, led by the prime minister, wanted to show some support. There's a bit of history there. We all know how he left his job as chancellor. uh, And I think probably a bit of goodwill there was, was there to be used up. Uh, But equally, there is also the wider point and the disconnect that people sometimes feel between politicians and the wider public. If the public have to behave a certain way, and while it's not backed in law, there is still government guidance around wearing masks in crowded places and on transport and the like. Why should that not apply to MPs and our elected representatives as well? So I think that penny probably dropped and... Um, people thought with the numbers going the way they are and with the current situation with COVID that it it seems like it's the right thing to do. Yeah, well, I guess their argument was that they needed to be recognisable and seen to be speaking and so on. But the counter argument, obviously, uh, they they are um, symbols and and people look to them to see what they're doing. Rosa, tell us about uh, coronavirus passports. So you've been tracking this all the way along. Where are we on that? I mean, France has suddenly done an awful lot on it. We haven't. Yeah, so quite a few countries across Europe have now introduced fairly extensive COVID passport schemes, more extensive than what the government is suggesting for Plan B. And the UK government has really gone backwards and forwards on this. There was a suggestion that we were going to bring in mandatory vaccine-only passports in October, but then obviously they U-turned on that and kept them just as an option for Plan B instead. In terms of where we are at the moment, there have obviously recently been calls to move to Plan B and suggestions that the NHS is already under a lot of pressure. But the case numbers are very unpredictable. And the last few days, they seem to be falling again. Earlier this week, we also saw a few government documents leaked, which kind of cast doubts on how much Plan B measures might reduce transmission and emphasise the potential economic costs. So I think it's very hard to say what's going to happen over the next few months. But it definitely seems like the government is keen to avoid introducing Plan B if that is at all possible. Mo, where do you think public opinion is on this? Are people receptive to the idea of a plan B? Do they have the stamina for one more heave um, over over Christmas? Are they beginning to realise that this may go on for years and years and years? Or have they really said enough? I think the timing uh, where we are in the year makes a big impact here. I think people want to avoid what we saw last year with Christmas effectively being cancelled one week before and want to actually see their loved ones this time around. So if it means that we have to take some measures to avoid that situation, then I think people will actually stomach that. And that decision should be made earlier rather than later. But it feels that there is conflicting Uh, medical evidence around this and there's a lot of talk about this being a children's epidemic and maybe it will 
fizzle out. So I think the government is waiting to see if there's any real truth in that. And the other big thing to remember is that we've got COP coming up, which will mean literally thousands of people from all around the world coming to Glasgow. I think it would be quite odd for the government to put restrictions in right now when that is happening in just a week's time. But in a few weeks, once that's done, it could all change. Let's use that as the cue to talk about COP itself, move away from social distancing and move on to, as as Mo says, lots and lots and lots of people descending on Glasgow, 25,000 people or so gathering. Sorry, Mo, you worked for Amber Rudd in the run-up to the Paris climate talks. Give us a sense of how preparations go ahead of these things. So they are long, long in the making. The The difference with Paris was that there was an agreement that had been uh, almost pre-cooked and that needed to be signed. And the French presidency spent a lot of time and a lot of ch- shuttle diplomacy trying to get that over the line. So when you get to the negotiations themselves, it's really the final push. Glasgow will be a bit different there. There is no expectation that there is going to be a big agreement to be signed, but instead people have to show the detail of what they've already promised they would do in Paris. So I think the format will be different, but these things are very, very chaotic. Lots of different things happening at the same time in lots of different countries with their own agendas, with their own economic situations and the things that they really, really want to push. So it's a massive task and a challenge that lies ahead. Rosa, this one was, of course, delayed by a year. It was supposed to happen a year ago, and then coronavirus got in the way. Do you think the world has benefited from that year, and this summit has benefited from that year, more chance to think about it and plan? Yeah, I'm not sure about more generally. I think the UK government has benefited from that year. It gave them time to bring out their net zero strategy last week, uh, which I think has definitely improved their position ahead of COP. It's got a much clearer plan now on how it sees the UK getting to net zero. And it can kind of show that to other countries to prove that it's serious about it and has an idea of how the UK is going to get there, which I think would be really useful. Well, and just tell us about those three documents. They were huge, (laughs) put all together, absolutely huge, and loads of tables and endnotes and whatever. What did they tell us that we didn't know before? Yeah, they were quite long. The main one was the overall net zero strategy. And what that essentially did was say for various sectors, we have these ambitions and this is broadly how we think we're going to get there. That varied a bit between sectors. So in some of them, it was a more detailed delivery plan. And in others, it was still a bit more high level. And it didn't cover all the kind of most difficult questions. So for example, on decarbonising land and agriculture, that was one of the gaps that the CCC identified. But in general, it set out a clearer view of how the government sees Britain getting to net zero. And then we also had the Treasury's net zero review. That was kind of higher level. So it set out some of the problems that it sees coming down the line, but it didn't really say this is exactly who we're intending to pay for the various different aspects of this. And then finally, you had the heat and building strategy, which was focused on how we're going to decarbonise buildings. So looking at heat pumps um, and how to incentivise people to and support people to uh, fit those in their houses. 
The report the papers are full of the travails of people who try to do just that, and at this point having quite a lot of trouble with some of it. Mo, what defines success at this conference? I think getting meaningful uh, commitments from the international community backed up by action, not just talk about keeping 1.5 alive, will be certainly something that the presidency will point to as success. I think also broadening the appeal of COP. Uh, a lot of people, I would warrant to say, probably don't really know what it is or what it means for them. I think the education piece has certainly been lacking around this. But this is more than just about the two weeks. You know, Once the leaders go back home, will businesses be suddenly less interested? Will we stop talking about this? Because that, that will not help us achieve what it's meant to achieve. So having a bit of a long tail for this as well uh, will be will be interesting. And also cutting through the noise. Cops have a lot of noise, lots of geopolitics involved. I remember in Paris last time, there was a big discussion because Bolivia, for example, wanted the words Mother Earth referenced in the agreement. So it could be something could hold things up that is not on the face of it linked to climate change at all. So cutting through that, getting to the actual substance uh, beyond everyone agreeing in warm words, but actually backing up by action, movement on climate finance, uh, all of these will contribute to what success looks like. Now, never mind returning home, some leaders won't be leaving home at all, President Xi of China among them. Does that matter? On the face of it, it does matter because uh, these are big emitters. Uh, However, I don't think that's the only story in town. Certainly my experience is that the vulnerable countries, the smaller island states, the countries that are the most uh, at risk are really, really important here. They have just as much say and they have a lot of power and influence. They can be quite helpful, actually, in terms of exerting pressure on the big players where needed. So I'm sure the Putin-Xi no-shows will be a talking point. But if you don't also engage with these smaller countries, which we spend a lot of time doing in Paris, uh, then actually you are no further forward either. Rosa, what counts as failure? What do you think Downing Street is really, really focused on now? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about keeping 1.5 alive. This is a, a, the, um, the warming, the target of, of not letting the Earth's temperature rise by more than 1.5 degrees. Yes, exactly. So the current plans that countries have set out don't keep, are not predicted to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. So I think... Failure would probably look like coming out of the summit with very similar plans to what we have now from various countries rather than a kind of more ambitious set of proposals for how countries are going to decarbonise and move towards net zero. Well, we'll have to see what comes out and begins coming out because it's going to be quite a long, um, long session, I think, um, beginning this weekend and going right the way through the week. So more to come on that. But for the moment, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Rosa Hodgkin. Gemma Tetlow, and especially to Mo Hussein. Thanks for listening at home. If you like this podcast, then you're in luck. We've got another one heading your way with the IFG's team of ACE economists giving the budget lowdown. Gemma's doing that now. You can listen to all our podcasts at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. I always say that. We always like it. And you can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, including all our brilliant budget coverage and net zero work. So there we have it. Another budget is done. Another podcast is done. Time to slip on the sliders, unwrap the twigs, kick back for the pint of Sprite. See you next week. <laughs>